Genesis chapter 45, please. This morning is Resurrection Sunday. We have read the Gospel already. We have read concerning the importance of our resurrection through 1 Corinthians 15. The importance of Christ's resurrection, excuse me. Jesus Christ lived on this earth 100% man, 100% God lived a sinless life. After 33 years upon this earth, the Scriptures tell us that He was brought to trial for wrongs He had not committed. But He answered not His mouth. He did not reply. He did not defend Himself because it was for Him to fulfill all righteousness through His death. Scriptures tell us he was beaten, he was scorned, and he was hung upon a cross where he died. And yet he did not remain in the grave. Scriptures tell us he was buried, placed into a tomb. That tomb had a stone rolled over the entrance and it was sealed. And yet, in the morning of the third day, Mary goes to the tomb, sees the stone rolled away, Here's the words, He is risen, as He said. Our Lord and Savior rose again from the grave in victory over sin and death. And the Scriptures tell us, as we heard this morning, that because He lives, we can as well. Yet I'd like to tell you a story this morning. It's going to begin in Genesis and we will finish our time in the New Testament. And the biblical account we're going to look at today, if you'd like to follow along, will begin actually in Genesis 37, a few chapters back. It's the story of a man named Joseph. Jacob's father, Isaac, was dead. And Jacob was dwelling in the land of Canaan. The man had twelve sons by two wives and two concubines. And the wife he loved most, Rachel, had borne him two of those sons. The eldest son was named Joseph and the youngest named Benjamin. Genesis 37.3 tells us that Israel, this was Jacob's covenant name, his other name, loved Joseph more than all of his children. Joseph was the firstborn of his most beloved wife. Joseph was also a very good boy. He was very well behaved. Because of this love for his son, Israel made for Joseph a coat of many colors. Now this would have been a long outer garment, a robe if you will. And this was a sign of personal favor. One such as kings would wear or kings would give to their children. Joseph was the favored of the children. Well, as you might expect, whenever there's favoritism toward one child in a family, it caused great trial, great 
problems in that family. Conflict always arises among parental favoritism, and it was no different in the lives of Joseph and his brothers. And so, at least in part, Joseph's brethren hated him because he was daddy's special boy. As a matter of fact, Genesis 37 verse 4 tells us that his brethren hated him so much they could not, literally could not speak peaceably to him. They could not say any kind words unto him because they hated him for how much his father loved him. Then one day things got even worse for this relationship between Joseph and his brothers. The Scriptures tell us in verse 5 of chapter 37 that Joseph dreamed a dream. And in this dream, Joseph and his brethren were binding bundles of grain. And then as they were binding these bundles of grain, Joseph's bundle arose and stood upright. And Joseph says in his dream, he saw all of the other bundles, his brother's bundles, bow down to his bundle of grain. Another night he dreamed a dream. And in this dream, the sun and the moon and eleven stars bowed down to him. Symbols not only of his brethren, but also his parents humbling themselves before him, before Joseph. So Joseph, you can imagine, already having been hated of his brother, was not doing himself any favors by telling his brothers of this, of these dreams. They were envious of their father's favoritism and probably his good conduct as well. And now they hear him talk about how they are going to bow down to him and they hate him even more. We should note, however, that there is not one word spoken against Joseph in these verses. It does not appear that his actions were wrong in sharing this dream. It does not appear he was attempting to provoke his brethren or shove anything in his brethren's faces or anything of the sort. He was simply telling his brethren the dream that he had. And there came a time when the children of Israel had sent his sons, or uh, Israel had sent his children into a place called Shechem, another city, to feed the flocks there. And the Scriptures tell us in chapter 37, verse 13, that Israel sent his son Joseph to see after his brethren. He says, Do not thy brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send thee unto them. And he said, Here am I. Jacob wanted a report. He wanted a report of how his sons were doing with this flock. So he sent Joseph to find them and to report on them. Joseph goes to Shechem and his brothers weren't there. He starts asking around, hey, have you seen these 11 guys and their sheep? Someone in the town says, yeah. Yeah, they said that they were heading further. They said that they were heading to Dothan. So Joseph follows that lead and he goes to Dothan and there he finds his brethren. Now, perhaps it was that they were not supposed to be there and they knew Joseph would report back truthfully to his father. Perhaps it was because Joseph was away from his father's protection and they saw a rare opportunity. But whatever the case was, Joseph's brothers decided as they saw him coming across the field that they would kill him and that they would throw him into a pit. And so they were conspiring to do so, to find the means by which to kill him and to throw him into a pit when the eldest brother, his name was Reuben, stopped them. And he said, let's not do that. Let's 
just throw him into the pit alive for now. His plan was eventually to free his brother and to get him back to daddy safely. That was what Reuben wanted. For the time, they took his coat, they threw him into a pit, and they said, I will decide what to do with him later. As the chapter continues, we find Reuben was off somewhere and a couple of Joseph's brothers saw a band of Ishmaelites coming down the road near them. And they began to think and they said, you know, if we kill Joseph, we're not going to get anything for our trouble. We might as well profit by him a little bit, so let's sell him as a slave to these Ishmaelites. And maybe he'll just go into a foreign land and he'll probably die there as a slave in a couple of years anyway. So let's just kill him by proxy and hey, in selling him we'll also get some money for it too. This will be perfect. It was Judah who proposed this. And so the brethren did it. They took his coat, they dipped it in goat's blood, they tore it into pieces, they sold Joseph into slavery, and then they brought this coat that had been torn and dipped in goat's blood to their father, and they said, we don't know where Joseph is, but we found this coat in the field. Is this your son's coat? Jacob looked at that coat and he said, it is my son's. He's been torn apart by a beast. Jacob was devastated. He could not be comforted by his children. And Joseph was sold into the house of an Egyptian whose name was Potiphar. He was the captain of the guard. Some time passes and we pick up again with Joseph in chapter 39. We fast forward several years now. Joseph has been through a great ordeal in the land of Egypt. The Scriptures tell us in chapter 39... Verse 2, that the Lord was with Joseph and he was a prosperous man. Potiphar recognized Joseph's prosperity and because Joseph was such an honest man and such a prosperous man and the blessing of the Lord was upon him, Potiphar placed everything that he had in his household under the care of Joseph. As a matter of fact, the Scriptures tell us that Joseph was in, in such charge of that household that Potiphar didn't know what he had and what he didn't. He didn't know the extent of his possessions. All he knew is that every morning and every evening, he, there was bread on the table. Which means everything must be going okay. He trusted Joseph implicitly. However, there was one thing in Potiphar's household that had not been given to Joseph. That was Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife, however, was not a virtuous woman. And she pursued Joseph, attempting a relationship with him. He refused, as a righteous man would. And Potiphar's wife ends up falsely accusing Joseph of rape or attempted rape. And Joseph, being nothing more than a servant, a slave, was cast into prison. Now in prison, he was also successful. The captain of the prison recognized very quickly that Joseph was an honest man, that Joseph was a prosperous man, and so Joseph ended up basically running the prison. And one day, two prisoners came into Joseph's care. They were servants of Pharaoh. One was his chief baker, the other was his chief butler. These two men had dreams. And 
in these particular dreams, well, having not, not knowing what these dreams mean, they were very troubled. Joseph was blessed by God with the privilege and the ability to interpret these dreams, and he accurately interpreted them. After which, according to the dreams, the baker was killed by Pharaoh and the butler was restored to his position of service. That is exactly what the dreams had said. That's exactly what Joseph interpreted in those dreams. And when the butler was restored to service, Joseph in prison, before he left, said, I make one request of you. When you are released, when you are restored, please remember my name. Please commend me to Pharaoh because I am in here, I've been in here for a long time and I've done nothing wrong. Well, the butler is restored to service and he forgets about Joseph. Slipped his mind. So happy to be back in his position, he had completely forgotten. Until one day, Scriptures tell us two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. This dream is very troubling to him. And no one is able to interpret the dream. And then as the Pharaoh is uh, lamenting that no one in Egypt, that none of his wise men, that none of his sorcerers are capable of interpreting this dream, the butler says, oh yeah, I remember now, there was this guy in prison. And when I was in prison, I had a dream and I didn't know what it meant and I was discouraged and he told me my dream, what it meant, and he was right. And the baker was there too and he told the baker the dream and he was right. The baker died and I was restored exactly as Joseph said. Pharaoh says, get this guy out of prison. So they pull him out. He gets cleaned up. It says that they shaved him. They cut his hair and he stands before Pharaoh. Pharaoh tells Joseph the dream and the Scriptures tell us that God allows Joseph to understand Pharaoh's dream. And this dream prophesied of seven years of great plenty in the land of Israel, of Egypt, after which there would be seven years of tremendous famine in the land. So Joseph says, Pharaoh, what you should probably do is find somebody to store up all of the plenty of those first seven years because after that, there's going to be seven years of great trial. And you're going to want to have food stored up for that time. Pharaoh looks at Joseph and he says, is there any man in Egypt as wise as you? You're the man. You're the man I'm placing in charge of this. As a matter of fact, I am making you second most powerful man in my entire kingdom. Aside from me, there is no one more powerful than you. Quite possibly, he became the second most powerful man in the world at that time. Egypt was a very powerful nation. I've summarized a great deal of content, we skip to chapter 42 this morning. And the Scriptures tell us that following the seven years of plenty, the famine did indeed begin. This famine spanned well beyond Egypt. It ended up touching Jacob and his sons in the land of Canaan as well. So Jacob sent ten of his sons. Joseph, he assumed to be dead, and Benjamin, his other son, he now would not depart with, but he sent his other ten sons into Egypt to buy food because there was no food in the land of Canaan. Now, when they arrived in Egypt, it was Joseph, their long-lost brother, who was presiding over the selling of this corn. 
They did not recognize him, him most likely having grown up and perhaps having gone through some very hard times in prison and as a slave. And now restored uh, to power, however, uh, looking like an Egyptian. And they did not recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognized them. And the Scriptures tell us that Joseph decided he would test their hearts to see if they had any regrets over their sins against him, against their father, and against the truth. Ultimately against God. So the Scriptures tell us he was pretty hard on his brethren. He spoke roughly to them. He called them spies in the land and commanded that they bring their younger brother as proof that they were in fact brethren and not spies. You say you have a younger brother. You say you have a father in Canaan. Prove it. Bring your younger brother to me. When I see him, I'll believe you. Now this was a problem for these brethren because there was no way Jacob was going to let Benjamin go. He'd already lost one of his sons from his favorite wife. There's no way he's going to let the other one go to Egypt. No way he was going to risk anything happening to Benjamin. So they get home and they say, Dad, the man gave us our food, but he spoke very roughly to us and he said that we may not come again unless we have Benjamin with us. Well, the time came where they needed more food. Dad said, hey, go down to Egypt and get us more food. They still have plenty there. They said, we can't go. Unless you send Benjamin with us, we cannot go. He said, I'm not sending Benjamin. They said, well, then we can't go. Judah pleaded. He said, Father, let's go. Let us go down to Egypt. And if we don't return with Benjamin safe, then you can kill my sons. Of course, This wouldn't have been what Jacob wanted. But eventually, they simply had no choice. They needed food. So he said, okay, take Benjamin and go. These 11 brothers go down to Egypt. And as they went to Egypt, Joseph commanded that the men come and eat with him. So they did, and they fellowshiped with him. And as they left, Following this second journey, he gave them their food and he commanded one of his servants to hide his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. So they went their way. As they had left, Joseph then commanded his servants, go find them and find that cup. Accuse them of stealing it. So they go and they stop these brothers and they say, our master has been very good to you. How dare you steal one of his cups? And they say, we didn't steal his cup. As a matter of fact, Judah said, if one of us stole that cup, the person whom you find it with will die. So they search all of the bags. And lo and behold, it's in Benjamin's bag. Now we've got a real problem. Benjamin's in trouble. He can't stay in Egypt. What would father say? It would kill him if his son was stuck in Egypt, if his son was killed for this. So they go back to Joseph and they fall down on their knees before him and they beg him and and Judah says, take me in his place. If Benjamin doesn't return, then our father will die. Verse 
verses 1 through 2 of chapter 45 tell us this. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. It was at this time that Joseph finally revealed himself unto his brethren. He saw their repentant hearts. He saw that they had regretted their actions toward him. And he finally revealed himself. He said, brethren, I am Joseph. And verse 3 tells us this. And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. Can you imagine what would have been going through the minds of the brethren of Joseph at this point? Here they had been grieved because one of them must die, but now the brother that they had sold into slavery and had intended to kill was ruling over them. They were under his power. Joseph's dream had come to pass. They did indeed all bow before him as he had dreamed several years prior. And this brings us to chapter 45, verse 5. The Scriptures tell us this, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves, Joseph speaking, that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in which there shall neither be earring nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And He hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Wow. What a response by Joseph to these brethren that hated him and sought to kill him. Do you notice Joseph's perspective here? Do you see his humility and incredible submission to God's will? It is perhaps not rare for us to see the difficult circumstances in our lives and to trust that God knows best, even when we don't understand what's going on. It is perhaps not rare for us to quote Romans 8.28 and to say that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are the called according to His purpose. And as struggles come, we rest in the knowledge that God knows and that God loves us and that God has our best interests in mind. But what about those who brought our struggles to pass? How do we feel about them? Yes, perhaps when we lose our job, we can get on our knees and say, God, I know you know best. I know that you've got a plan. But what do we think about the guy who fired us? Yes, perhaps when someone lies about us, we're able to get on our knees and say, God, you know that they're wrong and I trust you and and you have a plan, but what do we think about the person that lied about us? Perhaps if we're having a very good day as a Christian, and we're following the Word of God, we even have the ability to forgive them. And so we do. We forgive them for their wrongs against us. But what if? What if you found out that the entire point of your suffering of your pain, of your troubles, was so that you could eventually be their salvation. 
What if you found out that the very point of all of your struggles, the very point of them hating you and wanting to kill you, was so that you could one day bless them? How hard would that be for us? How hard of a perspective would it be for us to have? The man that wanted you dead, and now you have his life in your power, and you're not only going to see that God had a plan, you're not only going to forgive that person, but you are going to do everything in your power to, make that, to, to save that person and to bless that person and to nourish that person for the rest of their lives. What if the primary reason for you going through trials was to be the salvation of those who had put you into those trials to begin with? How would you handle that? I can't say as though I necessarily would handle that very well. But that's the perspective of Joseph in these verses. Notice he didn't mention anything about God working through his circumstances or in his own best interest. He didn't tell them, you know what, brothers, it's okay that all of this happened because it worked out in the end. I'm now a powerful guy. I'm comfortable. We're okay now, so it's okay. He didn't tell them, I forgive you because it all worked out. He didn't tell them, God used it to teach me a bunch of lessons that I needed, so it's okay. What did he tell them? Verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And then look at verse 11. And there will I nourish thee, for yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. Literally, Joseph says, Brethren, now that you are here, now that you know I'm your brother, don't worry, I am going to take care of you for the rest of your lives. Wait a minute, Joseph. Did you forget that we tried to kill you? We wanted you dead? That we sold you into slavery? That we told your father that you were dead? Did you forget that? No. But this is why God raised me up. To preserve you. To bless you. And I'm going to bless you. And so it was that Joseph regarded his entire life, not in terms of his own life, but in terms of the lives of those who hated him most. And you know, Joseph was not the only man in history to have such an incredible perspective. Isaiah 53, verses 4-6 through six tell us this. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, and He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. We see in these verses the description of a man who bore the punishment of others. A man who suffered wrongfully in his own life in order that he might save others from the punishment that they deserved. Just like Joseph, a man who suffered in prison, a man who was falsely accused, a man who went through trials and tribulations not for his own benefit, but for the benefit of those who had put him there to begin with. So too the Scriptures speak in Isaiah 53 about a servant of God who would bear the pain and the punishment and the sin of another. 
But who was this man? And who are the ones for whom he suffered? Well, the scriptures tell us very clearly that this man is Jesus Christ. In the book of Acts, chapter 8, a man named Philip is speaking with an Ethiopian eunuch who was reading the very passage in Isaiah that we just considered. And as these two are interacting with each other, the eunuch asks Philip in verse 34, of whom speaketh the prophet this? And the scriptures tell us in verse 35 that Philip opened his mouth and preached unto him the man named Jesus. That the man who bore this sorrow, that the man who bore this sin, that the man who bore the wrath of God was a man named Jesus. Jesus bore the griefs. Jesus suffered for the sins of other men. Jesus is the one who took the punishment upon himself that these others deserved. And the scriptures tell us how this punishment went about, how this wrath went about. The scriptures tell us he was mocked. Jesus was whipped. He was beaten. And finally, when he had endured the greatest of human shame and the deepest of human agony, he was crucified upon a cross. Nails were driven into his hands and into his feet and then left to suffer upon the cross for hours in cruel anguish. And in those hours of anguish, Isaiah 53 verse 6 tells us that Jesus took the wrath of God that had been meant for others, the punishment of God that had been meant for others, and Jesus took that punishment upon himself, that he suffered so that he could bless others. And that brings us to our second question. Who is the man? Well, the man is Jesus Christ. Who are these ones that he suffered for? Who are these others? Well, it's you. It's me. It's us. We are the guilty ones. We are the ones that actually deserve that punishment. We are the ones who have offended God. We are the ones upon whom the wrath of God rested. And Jesus Christ on that day took the wrath of God for you. Jesus took the punishment of the men who beat him. Jesus took the punishment of the men who hung him on the cross. Jesus took the punishment of your sin. A punishment which you deserve because you have rebelled against God. As Jesus hung upon the cross that day, the words he said were, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As Jesus was dying upon the cross, he looked at the men who had driven those nails into his hand and he loved them. And he knew that he was doing what he was doing so that man wouldn't have to burn in the eternal place of punishment known as hell. Now perhaps you say, Pastor, you must mean someone else. Sure, you know, those guys down the street in jail, maybe they deserve to be punished by God. Maybe they deserve the wrath of God. Maybe they deserve hell, but not me. I'm a pretty good person. Are you? Isaiah 64, 6 tells us this. But we are all as an unclean thing. And all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. 
the very best that you have to offer God in this life, all of the good things that you could possibly do, all of the going to church, all of the giving to the poor, all of the helping other people, all of those good things, the Scriptures tell us, are as filthy rags before the righteousness of God. You try to be good, but good isn't enough because God is not just good. God is perfect. God is holy. And He cannot and will not tolerate sin. And so the standard is not goodness. The standard is perfection. And if you are not perfect, then you are guilty. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 that there is not one man or one woman upon this earth that is righteous naturally before God. Now, sin, as the Bible defines it, is anything that we say, anything that we do, anything that we think that is contradictory or against God's person, His will, or His word. And we've all done something that's offended God's word. We could just run down the Ten Commandments and find out that every single one of us has sin. Have you ever lied? Sure you've lied. You're a sinner. Have you ever stolen? If you've stolen, you're a sinner. Have you ever lusted after something or someone that's not yours? Well, sure you have. You're a sinner. Have you ever disobeyed your parents or your authorities? Yes. You're a sinner. Everyone is a sinner. So that means it doesn't really matter how much good you have done, because if you've done any bad, then you are guilty. The analogy goes like this. When a man has committed a crime, and he stands before the judge, and he says, Judge, yes, I did indeed steal that car, but look at all the good things that I've done. After all, for years I've I've volunteered at my local animal shelter. For years, I've helped people. For years, I've gone to church. Look at all these good things I've done. Shouldn't my good outweigh my bad? I'm a pretty good person. Well, if he's a righteous judge, none of that's going to matter. Because under the law, it's not about your good weighing, outweighing your bad. It's about paying for the crimes you've committed. And so that man will still pay for the crime of stealing a car regardless of how much good he's done. So too, when you stand before God one day, God will not weigh your good against your bad to decide whether or not you're righteous. God will not weigh your good against your bad to decide whether or not you're worthy of heaven. God will not weigh your good against your bad to decide whether you're going to make it in or not. God will look at whether or not you have sinned. And everyone sinned. Which means you're guilty. And that's the bad news. But there's good news. See, because you're guilty, but we've already said, Jesus bore your guilt. Jesus paid your debt. Jesus took your punishment. Do you see the plan of God? Do you see what God has done to save you from your sins? You are guilty of sinning against a holy and perfect God. But there's a man who died to save you from that punishment. 
Just like Joseph, who saw in his life the opportunity to save those who hated him, to save those who had wronged him, to save those who had sinned against him, Jesus lived and died to save those who had sinned against him, who had wronged him, who had spoken against him, who had offended his law. You, who have sinned against God, can be saved because of the death of the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. You, who have lived in rebellion against God's commands, have had your penalty paid so that you don't have to pay it yourself. So that you don't have to be the one to spend an eternity in a place called hell, which the Bible tells us is the righteous punishment for your sin. And so Romans chapter 5, verses 7-8 through tells us this, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man. Some would even dare to die, but God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Sure, we might understand it, right? If Jesus was dying for a bunch of good people. We might understand it if Jesus had made the sacrifice for those who, like him, were very good. But that's not who Jesus died for. Because there aren't any. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for murderers. Jesus died for thieves. Jesus died for liars, for adulterers, for the disobedient. And what that means is that Jesus died for you. The reason why Jesus went to that cross and suffered that pain and that punishment was for you. Because Jesus knew that you would sin against Him. Jesus knew that you would offend His holiness. Jesus knew that you would do wrong. And He loved you enough to die for you anyway. But like any gift, even after it's bought, it must be accepted. Jesus has paid the price. His blood, spilt on the cross of Calvary, paid the price for your sins so that you don't have to bear the punishment yourself. He's purchased the gift, but the purchase cannot benefit you if you don't accept the gift. So, Pastor, you ask, how is it that I accept the gift? Well, John 3.16 tells us this. You're familiar with it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, there's the gift, that whosoever believeth in Him, the Son, should not perish, but have everlasting life. The Bible tells us that you accept the gift of salvation for your sins by believing on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that you simply know in your head that Jesus is God because the Scriptures tell us even the devils, even the the demons, even Satan believes that Jesus is God. But it means you have accepted the truth of Jesus Christ. Christ in the Gospel. You have accepted that Jesus is God. You have accepted that you need a Savior because you cannot save yourself. That you have accepted the truth that Jesus is that Savior and that you are willing to place your complete confidence in Jesus Christ's finished work to save you from your sins. So the Scriptures tell us in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you will but ask Him, He will save you. God doesn't turn people away. God doesn't accept only a certain people. 
Scriptures tell us, whosoever will, whosoever is willing, may come. If you are but willing to accept the gift, the gift is yours. You know, but it gets even better. Because Jesus didn't just die to save you from the penalty of your sins. He also rose again. He is risen. And that is what today is all about. It's the day when we remember that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so 1 Corinthians 15.20, we read it already this morning, tells us, but now is Christ risen from the dead and that He has become the first fruits of them that slept. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead claiming victory over death, over sin, and over hell, we know that all who accept His gift of salvation will also one day be victorious over death, sin, and hell. And that is why Jesus Christ is the only source of salvation. He is the only way a man can get to heaven. Because only Jesus Christ died for your sins and then rose again for your salvation. You know what that means? That means Buddha is not going to get you to heaven. That means Allah is not going to get you to heaven. That means the Dalai Lama is not going to get you to heaven. That means devotion to a religion is not going to get you to heaven. That means good works are not going to get you to heaven because none of those things died and rose again for you. Only one man in history died to take upon himself the sins of the world and rose again for our salvation. And that is Jesus Christ alone. I speak first this morning as we complete our application to those of you who have already accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Do you realize that the very greatest action a man has ever done was entirely for the benefit of others and entirely for the purpose of God's glory? Even when we are trusting the Lord, our trust is often placed upon what God is doing for us. And to a degree, that's okay. I hope that we will cling to the realities of our salvation in the time that we'll find our final rest. But in this life, to put it plainly, there's simply no room to be self-centered Christian. Joseph lived his life to make his brethren successful. To save those who hated him and ultimately to glorify God. Christ lived his life completely submitted to the will of the Father by giving his life for those who hated him, for those who killed him. How can you give your life to the will of the Father for Christ's glory today? Because that is what the resurrection represents for us. Certainly it is a representation of our life to come, but it is also the stamp of God's complete satisfaction with Jesus Christ's life and ministry, a life of selflessness before God. And finally this morning I speak to the unbelievers in this room. Unbelievers, you have heard very plainly that you are a sinner and that you need to be saved. But what I haven't told you yet is that this call is very urgent. You may be saying, you know what, I know I need what you've said, Pastor. I know I need to be saved. I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm on my way to hell. I've never accepted Christ as my Savior. And I know I need to do it, but maybe tomorrow. I've got some other things I want to do first. Maybe tomorrow. 
Or I don't think I'm quite ready yet. Maybe tomorrow. Do you know that there will be a tomorrow? Do you know that you won't step out of those doors today and go to get in your car and be hit by a car? Do you know that when you get home, you won't drop dead of a heart attack? Do you know that there will be tomorrow? You don't. Even the youngest children in this room don't know that they're going to have it tomorrow. Article just this week, father woke up. His two and a half year old child was dead. They had no idea why. Did he assume that his daughter would not have it tomorrow? Not at that age. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. There's no guarantee of another minute for any of us in this life. And the scriptures tell us that if we do not accept Christ as our Savior in this life, scriptures say it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. There's no second chance, folks. You have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and the call unto you is that you accept it today, that you accept it now. You have heard that you can. You have heard that you need to. Your eternity is not worth waiting for. Will you make the decision today? You can do it right there in your seats. You can quietly bow your head. Call upon the name of the Lord. Ask Him to save you from your sins. Say, well, Pastor, I'm, I'm not quite comfortable. I still don't understand. You can come see me after the service or come see someone else after the service and we'll open a Bible and show you how you can feel more uh, comfortable with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But may I implore you, if you are an unbeliever in this room, do not leave today with this decision unsettled. Because there may not be a tomorrow. Let's pray together.